I think one of the beautiful things about it is sort of giving up your sense of control mm. a little bit. People who are interested in creating nature in their backyards, you kind of have to adjust your expectations. Mm. And I think it can be a really, really useful endeavor in this time when there's so many things that feel out of our control mm -hmm. to have something that is sort of purposely out of our control a little yeah. bit and that we can look at and, and learn from and just observe and share our observations with other people. So yeah, I think it's psychologically it can be a really nice endeavor. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever killed a plant by loving it too much. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today on the show, we're letting go of expectations and embracing the wilder side of gardening, because today we're hearing from Julia Michaels, whose voice you just heard, all about growing California native plants from seed. And just get ready, because we're tackling so much in this one episode. First, we'll head to Hedgerow Farms, which exclusively grows California native plants, to get into where native seed actually comes from, including the ethics of collection in the wild, how that wild collected seed can be amplified for restoration, what it's like working with seeds that are not domesticated, and even some genetic considerations. And then, in the second segment, we'll dive into how you can grow your own native plants from seed at home, whether you have acres to manage or a little tiny pot on your balcony, even if you've never grown or never successfully grown a plant in your life. This segment is packed with tips on how to get started, which native plants are easiest and most difficult to grow, the right season for starting seeds, common mistakes and how to avoid them, places where you can get your native plant seeds, and so much more. I want to remind you before we head out to the farm that this is episode 11 out of 12 in season two. So just one more episode in the season after this. After that next one comes out, I'll be traveling around the state to gather interviews for season three, which is already starting to come together in ways I am so excited about. I even just booked a little tiny house in Humboldt County so I can go talk to a bunch of cool people for you up there about some truly iconic California species and ecosystems. And what is the last episode in season two going to be about anyway, you ask? That one is featuring Miguel Ordignana, the scientist who first discovered the mountain lion P-22 in Griffith Park in the middle of Los Angeles. We'll be talking urban ecology, which of course covers all kinds of cool city-dwelling species, including both mountain lions and homo sapiens. And Miguel is just a wonderfully thoughtful and insightful human, so make sure you're following Golden State Naturalist wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss that one. I also want to give a big thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon for making this work possible. Last month, Golden State Naturalist became self-sustaining, meaning that it now makes as much money as it costs to create, which is a huge milestone, y'all. And I appreciate every single person who's making it happen by chipping in $4 a month or more. If you want to become part of that community and help more people learn about the ecosystems and organisms all around them, while also gaining access to video and audio extras from the episodes and the ability to get your questions asked during interviews, you can join us at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Also, don't forget to text this episode to the plant parents in your life or the wannabe plant parents or just like anyone who likes biodiversity and flowers and birdsong and springtime. Sharing episodes helps the actual most. So thank you if you've ever shared an episode before. It's one of the best ways to support your local indie podcaster. And I know you're out there doing this already because Golden State Naturalist has now been played in 
dozens of countries all around the world, all 50 states, and if I'm counting correctly, every city in California except for Amador, which is the smallest city in California. So if you've got a friend in Amador, you know, just pass this along. There are some beautiful oak trees out there, so they might like the oak episode. Anyway, I am flabbergasted by how far you've helped this podcast go. Thank you. If you want to see pictures and videos that go along with the episodes or my outdoor adventures or what my face looks like, you can follow me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. And my website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. You can also get yourself a t-shirt, tank top, or sweatshirt with the Golden State Naturalist bear and poppies on there. So check out the store via my website if you're looking for wearable merch. But now let's get to the episode. Dr. Julia Michaels is fascinated with the idea that ecological conservation and community development goals can be met through collaboration and education. This idea has brought her to live and work in diverse communities around the world, including Anchorage, Alaska, New Orleans, Louisiana, La Paz, which is in Baja, California, Mexico, and Ecuador. Julia completed her PhD in ecology at the University of California, Davis, where she focused her research on strategies for restoring native vernal pool wetlands. After graduating, she joined the faculty at Sacramento State and later the biology department at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Back home in California, Julia now loves working at Hedgerow Farms because it is her favorite way to connect with the public about the fascinating world of native plants and to recruit individuals to help us restore native ecosystems one backyard at a time. So without further ado, let's hear from Julia Michaels on Golden State Naturalist. acres do you guys have going right now? So it varies. You know, we've had as much as 500. I think we have about 250 to 300 in production right now. You know, it really depends on how many contracts we have, how much water is available. But yeah, anywhere between like two and 350 acres, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is pretty much as far as the eye can see native plants, which is really cool. That is amazing. Yeah. I met up with Julia on the kind of late summer day that's a little hard to remember now after the very cold, wet winter we've had here in California. Temperatures that day back in September reached 107 degrees at Hedgerow Farms, and this was well beyond halfway through the driest year on record here in California. It was so dry, in fact, that despite their eight groundwater recharge ponds and multiple bioswales planted with native sedges and rushes to increase soil saturation, one of Hedro's wells had just gone dry a day or two before my visit. Part of what caused that is what I think a lot of us would have guessed, which is that not enough rain had fallen directly onto the valley floor where the farm is located. But if you listen to the recent episode about water in the Central Valley, you'll know that the lack of surface water and subsequent issues with groundwater are also due to the way that we've changed the hydrology of the whole state, largely by constructing dams in the hills and mountains surrounding the Central Valley. And while those dams help make extensive agriculture in the state possible by controlling exactly when and where water is used, they also change and sometimes altogether stop natural cycles of seasonal flooding and keep historic wetlands dry in many parts of the Central Valley. 
There is so much more on all of that in the Central Valley Water episode, so definitely go check that out if you haven't already. But in the case of Winters, California, where Hedro is located, the dam in question is one that I knew as a kid because I grew up near it, the Monticello Dam, located on the eastern side of Lake Berryessa in Napa County. But what happened was when we built that dam, we really reduced the amount of flooding that Puda Creek, which is the creek that runs through the Berryessa Gap and into this area, it no longer was able to flood in the winter. And so this topsoil um, that's so rich in nutrients you know, it really developed because of that flooding regime. Mm -hmm. And as we cut off this valley from its freshwater source, we're sort of stuck with the topsoil that we have left. Mm -hmm. So we really, it's important for us to take care of, you know, the topsoil and the groundwater that we have here because we're not getting that recharge that we did prior to the building of that dam. Okay, story time. So you know how I said I grew up near Monticello Dam? Well, when I was seven, my family moved to my great-grandpa's property on Monticello Road. And he had been there since the 1930s when he was asked to leave San Francisco, which is a different story for a different day. But his arrival in Napa was well before the Monticello Dam was finished in 1957. So when he got there, to the hills near what is now Lake Berryessa, there was not a lake in Berryessa Valley, but a town, the town of Monticello. And when the dam was being constructed and the town was being vacated and demolished, there was a lot of abandoned debris that had to be moved out. Things like boards and pieces of corrugated tin. And my great-grandpa went in and salvaged a bunch of it and used it around his house and property. So when I lived at the ranch as a kid, I was living and playing under the scraps of a disassembled town that had been gone for almost four decades. And Puta Creek, which helps fill Lake Berryessa and then comes out on the eastern side of the Monticello Dam, also flows through Winters, California, where Hedro is located. It just doesn't flood like it used to because so much of that water stays behind in Lake Berryessa. But despite the extreme drought and dry well, we stood looking at a beautiful field of native mugwort, almost ready for harvest. And although they're plants that you often find in the wild around the Sacramento Valley, the way they were growing was not something I had ever seen from these plants. You know, you're used to seeing these plants in the wild where they're sort of dispersed at a more naturalistic pattern. But, you know, here you're going to see, it's so strange to see a whole monoculture of mugwort, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> or, you know, two acres just of poppies. It's a really interesting experience to, to see this, something that is so wild, kind of in an agricultural context. And if you've listened to this podcast very much in the past, you know how important native plants are for entire food webs, often beginning after the plants themselves with invertebrates, many of them specialist species that only eat or only lay eggs on a particular species of native plant. And Julia mentioned that lots of native bees and butterflies, including monarchs, make a home at Hedro, enjoying the bounty of their favorite plants in that one place. After we'd taken a look around the fields, Julia took me to meet Alejandro Garcia, seed collector and cleaner at Hedro, to learn where the seeds for those fields come from in the first place. Este, hago las colecciones fuera para los contratos y reconozco las semillas. And... Alejandro handles all the contracts for collecting seed from wildland areas for Hedro. He identifies native plants and collects their seed outside of the farm, which is a job that comes with plenty of challenges. Son como si este año colecto poquito y hay muchas plantas, para otro año tratar de agarrarlas en su tiempo, 
He says it's a challenge when he sees there are a lot of plants, but he's not able to collect much seed, and that in those cases, they like to return the following season and collect at a better time, to take care of these plants so they can produce more seed. He notes that the challenges always involve getting to know all the different plants better. And then there's timing. Cut the plant when it's too green and the seed isn't ready yet. At the right time, the seed comes out well. But if it's too late, the seed is dry. So the timing is important and the year's weather is important and impacts the timing. But there are also ethical considerations for collecting wildland seeds. Julia sent me Hedro's document on seed collection best practices, which includes things like having all the proper permissions and permits to collect in an area, but also taking extra care with sensitive species, using species-specific collection methods, cleaning and sanitizing tools and boots, which will sound familiar if you listen to the amphibian episode, harvesting only 25% of a given species in most cases, and this is wording right from the document, using biologically sound approaches for seed collection to prevent overharvest and maintain viability of wild populations of plant species. But even timing, weather, and ethics aren't everything in need of consideration when it comes to wildland seed collection. If you think back to the episode on California native plants from earlier this season, you'll remember that California is a biodiversity hotspot, which means there's huge variety in the plants Alejandro is out collecting every year. In 2022, for example, he collected 56 or 57 species. Alejandro isn't sure how many species he's collected in total in his 23 years at Hedro. He and Manolo Sanchez do most of the collecting, which lasts more than half of the year, beginning in February and not wrapping up until September. Alejandro's nephews come up from Mexico to help out during the summer months. And if the team isn't collecting seed, you can very likely find them in the barn cleaning it, or cleaning seed from the fields of native plants grown right at hedgerow. But what does cleaning seed mean? Basically, it's getting the seed itself separated from all the other stuff, the general plant debris and even possibly unwanted seeds, like if there were any weeds popping up in the field at the time of harvest. I'll let farm manager Jeff Queter explain how the seed cleaning machines work. Okay, so we came inside the barn, and this is where most of the magic happens for cleaning the seeds, yeah? Yeah, so first goes through the, the scalper and sifter, so taking out big stems and anything that's smaller than the seed and generally getting everything that's the same size of the seed and um, separating it out so it can go to the next step. So I just have to bust in here to say that these machines look straight up like something out of Dr. Seuss. There are these shimmying drawer looking things stacked on top of each other. Everywhere you look, there are tubes, conveyor belts, spouts, levers, and then tubs for collecting the cleaned seed and multiple big empty Rubbermaid trash cans for collecting the unwanted debris that's been separated from the seed. I'll also post some pictures or videos on social media so you can see for yourself, just in case that didn't make sense. Okay, now that you kind of know what this machine looks like, let's keep following the seed along its journey. And then this is the next step? Yeah, so after the sifter and scalper, it goes to an elevator, then to some indents, which separate by 
length. So the, the first separator actually has a series of screens and also separates using air, so it'll suck out the small particles, anything that's lighter than the seed, and you can calibrate it to, sometimes you calibrate it too much where it sucks out everything, so that's, oh, no. <laughs> that's obviously not what you want. Has to be that sweet spot exactly. of not picking up the seed, but getting enough of the trash out yep. of the seed. Wow, that's difficult. So then there'll still be foreign material mixed in with this stuff, so it'll go to another machine and indent, and those separate by length. So depending on what you're separating out, your clean seed either goes into a hopper, which is inside the indent drum, or if the seed is long enough to not fit in the indents, it will ride across the bottom and then just be deposited into another elevator or, or a clean bag, um, depending on what the next step would be. In this case, it's being deposited into an elevator and then into a bag. In normal cases, it would be going onto our gravity table, which separates by density using air also. And all these machines have different settings so they can be calibrated different ways, so. And that allows you to adjust for what kind of seed you're working with? Yeah, exactly and what we're trying to, to remove. And a lot of these machines that we're using for cleaning, actually all of them are not, were not designed for native seed. So they're designed right. for stuff that flows better. So where there would normally be a three inch opening going from one machine to another, ideally ours might be twice as big, so six inches. Wow. Just to make room for everything to flow. And it's also not as heavy, so it doesn't flow with gravity as well. So the machines have to be calibrated with these wild seeds in mind. And Jeff has honed that very specialized knowledge over the last 10 years at Hedro. It was funny one time, I think it was Chris Rose from Solano RCD was here, and we were looking at Grindelia camporum seed. And I was mentioning to him, you know, this, this Grindelia camporum is a lot bigger than it usually looks. And he was like, how would you even know that? It's, and I, <laughs> so I was like, well, the stuff that I know is pretty much all that I know. <laughs> At this point, you've got like an intuition or a sixth sense about it, I would imagine. It occurs to me that there are not a whole lot of people in the world with the kind of specific expertise held by Jeff, Alejandro, and Manolo. It has to be developed over years of experience and intentional observation. When working with wild, undomesticated seeds and plants, things can vary quite a bit. Let's head back to that field of mugwort with Julia to hear more about this, and return to the place we started in this cycle we've been exploring of seed collection, cleaning, sowing, growth, and eventually, harvest. It's one of the last species we harvest, because mm. right now it's, you know, September, most of our plants have already been harvested for seed, but, you know, we have this beautiful field growing strong, waiting for the seed to ripen. And how do you know when it's ripe? It can be a tricky process. Even in an agricultural context, these native plants are so, you know, wild still that we have to go out and check constantly. Mm -hmm. And the, the ripening is not even, even within a single field. So it really is kind of a, an art that takes some finesse. One of the things you do is you just kind of grab it and you just rub it between your hands and then you look to see if there's any hard seed. So this one looks like nothing is ripe quite yet. But then if we go over here, you can see the sort of lack of consistency across the field. Yeah, this one's way more brown. Right. It's still green. Yeah, and the seed is really tiny. I can show you a bag of it in a moment, but you can start to see some of the teeny mm, little seeds yeah, forming. Yeah, little tiny black. Oh, they almost look spotted. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, these are some of the smallest seed that we produce. And I'll show you the variation in size. Some of them are about, you know, as big as a pea, and some Whoa. of them are so tiny that if you breathe on them, they'll blow away. It occurred to me later that I wanted to know more about the wildness of these seeds. So I emailed Julia to ask if Hedrow was concerned about the seed slowly becoming domesticated after too much time living that farm life. Her response was fascinating, so I'm just going to read it to you. She says, yes, we're worried about plants domesticating over time if we grow them for too many generations at the farm after collecting them in the wild. The best practice would be to either, one, collect a whole bunch of seed from the wild, keep it in cold storage facility where it theoretically never goes bad, and then just draw from that original collection, what we call G0 or Generation Zero, every time we want to plant a field. But we would have to collect a lot of seed for that. Or option two, we could go out and collect G0, Generation Zero, seed from the wild every time we want to grow a field. But that is a huge amount of work, and there really isn't a lot of science, read practically any science, to say how many generations native seed has to grow at a farm before it loses its, quote, wildness. She also said there's one lady in Germany who started to do some studies on this, and she included a link to some of that research, which I'll put in the show notes. But adds, honestly, it is probably very species dependent. So here's her description of what Hedro does. In practice, we save seed from our fields and plant again, so the next crop is G1, the following G2. But a lot of our species are long-lived perennials, so the generations can still be pretty low, even if the collection is very old. The absolute oldest seed we use to grow at the farm is probably between generation 6 and generation 8, collected almost 20 years ago. Again, we don't really have the science to be sure that 8 generations is really going to change the genetics. But we can make an educated guess that G8 is probably too long and we need to recollect those species. So we are recollecting those species from the wild this year to replenish our stock seed for planting. What is super cool about that is that we know exactly where the original seed was collected from 20 years ago. So if this year we go out and recollect seed from that exact same spot, we can compare G0 to G8 seed and actually look at the genetic and morphological differences. This year, we're starting a project with a team of geneticists to compare G0 and G8 seed. So I'm very excited about that. And Julia, keep me posted on what happens with that project. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but don't blow away with the wind like the tiniest mugwort seed, because so far, we've heard about how farming California native seeds works from the brilliant people at Hedrow, but we still haven't even touched how you can grow your own seed at home and surround yourself with all manner of gorgeous and ecologically beneficial native plants. And really quick before we go, I wanted to let you know that the City Nature Challenge is right around the corner. So in case you're not familiar with it, the City Nature Challenge started out as a nature observation competition between San Francisco and Los Angeles, but has since expanded to over 400 cities worldwide. All you need to do to participate is to take a picture of any wild plant or animal or evidence of wildlife. So that evidence could be like a feather or a spider web or a beaver dam. Then upload your picture to the iNaturalist app. And now you're a participant in this awesome global community science project. The dates for this year's CNC are April 28th through May 1st. And you can follow the City Nature Challenge at 
SITNAT challenge. So C-I-T-N-A-T challenge on Instagram. There are also local groups that you can follow in some areas. For example, the group where I live in Sacramento is at CNC Sacramento. Participating in the City Nature Challenge is a lot of fun. So download the iNaturalist app and you can even practice making observations now before the challenge begins at the end of April. Okay, now stick around for all kinds of native plant growing goodness. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, onto the full interview with Julia Michaels. We found a spot to duck in out of the blazing heat. Yes. It's lovely. And I was wondering just kind of how you first became interested in native plants or in growing seed. Sure. Well, I think, you know, I was, I was a really spacey kid growing up and I would do a lot of just sort of wandering around the playground and looking at plants and my pockets were always just full of plant material, seeds, etc. And I think as I got older, kind of honed in more on wildflowers and native plants in particular but I think I was really scared off at first by all mm -hmm. the Latin names and the sort of the actual field of botany. Mm -hmm. I had a really fantastic TA when I was in school who made a really good case for why I should sort of double down and learn all the names and actually mm -hmm. get to know them better and she said you know when you're getting to know people and you learn their names it assigns more meaning to those people, right? Like mm -hmm. when you know someone's name, they, they become a more meaningful person to you. And so if you learn the name of plants, they become more meaningful to you. And since plants are everywhere, the world becomes more meaningful to you. And, and it's true, I think now that I've started to notice more plants and had less what we call plant blindness, you know, I can be stuck in a parking lot and entertain myself by <laughs> identifying the plants around me. And so, yeah, I just found that it continued to bring me a lot of joy and fulfillment. And it's just one of those things, especially plants, you don't have to live in the nicest neighborhood. You don't have to be, you know, next to a national park to have really interesting plant life to discover. So I feel like it's a great way to connect with people about nature too. That's really cool. I like the idea too, that it's accessible on this very immediate level, no matter kind of where you live, mm -hmm. especially Fingers crossed cities are doing a little bit more consideration about green spaces. Oh, certainly, yeah. So the other really thing good. was I had really terrible eyesight, and so mm. I was like, birds were out. Like, I could never see, <laughs> I, I could never see the birds. They'd be like, oh, look at that bluebird. And I'd be like, that fuzzy dot in the distance. Plants yeah. stay where you put them generally. Yeah, you could just go over there and look at it closer. <laughs> so I felt like that was, you know, it was my calling. In oh, that that's way. great. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, and then. Thinking about how this all applies, we just did this beautiful farm tour and saw the process on this big scale, right? Mm -hmm. But like for somebody who wants to grow some native plants at home from seeds, like 
why should they grow from seeds or in what situations should they grow from seeds rather than using small plants to start with? Sure. I think there are times that are appropriate for both. I think that if you have a very specific spot where you want a very specific plant, for example, you know, I have a strip of soil outside of my house along the pavement that I wanted a manzanita mm -hmm. growing. And it wasn't necessarily the easiest plant to grow from seed. I knew exactly where I wanted it to be. And it was the right time of year to grow a plant from a plug rather than from a seed. So I went out to a nursery and I, I purchased, uh, you know, a one gallon mm -hmm. of this uh, manzanita. However, if you want to do, for example, like um, a strip of all native annual wildflowers, you don't want to go out and have to buy, you know, 40 individual plugs of annual wildflowers and they grow perfectly fine from seed. And mm -hmm. often those ones tend to have tap roots that will actually not do so well in pots. They, they're much better if you put the seed in the ground and it can stay put where it lives. So depending on the species, and then also depending on the time of year, which we'll get into a little more, you might choose either seeds or, I say plugs, but I mean, you know, a, a live plant. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So it's very contextual. It's very contextual. And it helps if you learn a little bit about each type of plant. Exactly. And if people are like, but that's a lot and I don't know about the plants, like where can they look to maybe start learning some of that stuff? Sure, there's so many great resources now. I'm so happy that, you know, there's all these tools. I think Bloom California is a CNPS project oh, cool. where you actually can find a local nursery that has signed up to be a part of this program and they'll have a special native section and they'll have done some training to help people who come in looking for natives. And so that's all over California, which is great. Okay, Bloom California is an amazing resource. I'm going to link it in the show notes for you, but the URL is bloomcalifornia.org nurseries. And when you go there, it's got a map of the entire state of California, and you can see where geographically all of these nurseries are located that carry different native plants. I will say the only bummer is that there aren't a ton of options in far northern California and sort of southeastern California also. But if you're along the central to southern coast or Sacramento Valley or even along the Sierra Nevada mountains, there's quite a few options for native plant nurseries. And what's great about going in person is that I find it very helpful to have a real human explain things to me. So there's a good chance if you actually go to one of these nurseries in person, somebody knowledgeable will be able to help you out concerning plants that are a good fit for you in your area. Okay, and Julia's got more resources for us. And then if you're trying to do a little bit more DIY or you're off in the nurseries, they just carry live plants. But if you're thinking about seed, Calscape is mm. a really fantastic website. There's Calflora and Calscape. Calflora is a little bit more, it has more of a botany perspective mm -hmm. where it's, you know, maybe more people interested in finding native plants growing in the wild. Mm. And Calscape is really d dedicated to landscaping. Oh, so they'll nice. tell you all the different landscape requirements. The other place I would recommend looking is Facebook. I know a lot of us, you know, younger folks have moved on from Facebook, <laughs> but I still have one because there are some fantastic groups of people who help each other out and you can ask really specific questions. Mm -hmm. You can say, I am, you know, a gardener living in Elk Grove and I am interested in a, you know, in planting a ceanothus plant, a, mm -hmm. you know, a California lilac, which species do you all recommend? Oh, nice. And there will most likely be someone who has an answer for you. 
So yeah, there's all these different native wildlife groups and you just kind of go search um, for your area. Nice. And and that actually leads perfectly into my next question because one of my listeners, the listener was B. Hi B. Mm-hmm. She was wondering where people can get seed because she's had some struggle of finding like where do I source native seeds? How do I know it's a good source? Like all of all of those questions and and I think over the years it hasn't always been super accessible. Maybe that's changing now. Yeah, I think that it's hard to find commercially available native seed in quantities that often a homeowner might want, mm-hmm. right? For example, at Hedro, we try really hard to make our seed available to everybody. And mm-hmm. if you call and you want enough seed to you know, just plant out your front lawn with some native grasses, um, we'll certainly make that happen. But it, it can be a little bit more difficult than just going to your local Ace Hardware and picking up a bag of seed. Mm-hmm. There's a couple different companies. I mean, there's Hedro, mm-hmm. there's SNS Seed down in Southern California. There's Pacific Coast Seed, which is a little closer to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And then there's some of the retail companies like Larner Seeds mm-hmm. that you can contact. And it's it's changing right now. I mean, I know Pacific Coast used to have a retail brand, like the seed I just uh, gave you a little sample of, mm-hmm. that we would sell to nurseries. We don't have that right now. So hopefully someone else is filling that gap. So yeah, and I think the other thing that's really great are seed shares. So, you know, if you go onto those Facebook groups, a lot of times someone will say, you know, man, my buckwheat is going wild. I have a whole bag of seeds. Does anybody want to swap those for some California fuchsia seed? So it's kind of fun. You can some make some friends that well, way bartering. as well. Yeah. That's cool. And you know, kind of along those lines too, I was wondering about how do you know the ethics if you were just taking a walk in the woods? Mm-hmm. What are the ethics of collecting seed? Like when do you know if that's okay or how much to take or, or any of that? I would say the general rule is it's not okay if you don't know, if it's not private land that you know the owner of or are the owner of, mm-hmm. it's not okay to collect mm-hmm. native seed just because there's so many reasons that we can can or can't get into depending on our time. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's ethical from um, an environmental standpoint, also from a cultural standpoint. A mm-hmm. lot of plants are used by indigenous people and they, we need to save those seeds for them and those populations. But I think, you know, a lot of times people have native plants growing in their gardens and it's more than acceptable to, you know, hit up your neighbor and say, hey, I noticed that you have some really great monkey flower. Would you mind if I grabbed a few seed pods? Mm -hmm. The other great thing is, you know, you only need a couple seed pods to start your own native garden. So Mm -hmm. it's really not a, a big quantity. That's true, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you'd have to have a really big yard to need yeah. <laughs> a lot of seed because each plant probably is producing quite a bit more than it would sprout if it just fell on the ground. Oh, right? yeah, so absolutely. Producing in excess. And how can people make sure, because California is huge and mm-hmm. we have so many bioregions, right. how can people make sure that they're growing the right thing for their region? Would that go back to using like Bloom or Calscape? Is that what you would recommend? Yeah, Calscape mm-hmm. is great. And I think also Calflora has a tool called What Grows Here. Mm-hmm. So you can literally zoom into your area nice. and then you can filter by, okay, I'm interested in what grasses grow here nice. or what wildflowers grow here and it'll give you a list of you know regionally appropriate species bloom also helps you with that as mm-hmm. well because you're right california is huge and so you know i was just having even within california some natives are considered invasive in other areas wow so i was just Careful. having a conversation about oh it was a lupin species uh-huh. that grows in on the coast near point reyes uh-huh. And that same lupin up in Humboldt is considered an invasive. 
even though they're both like coastal California and just one's halfway up the coast and one's all the way yeah, up the coast. Yeah, its native range really stops around Tomales Bay. Um, I believe it's Lupinus arboreus. I would just have to double check that. Mm -hmm. But um, it's a yellow lupin, coastal lupin. And yeah, so it grows, it doesn't take over in the conditions, you know, kind of south of Tomales Bay, mm -hmm. but up in, you know, really northern coastal California, it it really outcompetes a lot of the other species and has been sort of, I mean, invasive is such a subjective term, but sure. it's considered a nuisance species, mm -hmm. even though it is native to the state of California. So do a little bit of research before you start planting. Go Absolutely. check it out on Calscape and Bloom. Exactly. I meant to say Calscape and Calflora, which I will, of course, link in the show notes. But of course, you can also use Bloom to find a native plant nursery and connect with someone who works there. And it can be fun. I mean, it's not always fun, but go into it with the attitude of, of learning and know that every single person who has, you know, planted natives in their yards has gone through a lot of trial and error mm. and a lot of failure. And then that's another reason why I think it's really great to try and find those communities of people in your area so you can share in those successes and failures together. Sure, And yeah. learn from one another. And then it's not just plugging your zip code into something, it's actually talking to someone who had that experience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Possibly in that zip code. Yes. One of my listeners, listener turned friend, um, uh -huh. who has this urban farm, it's called Find Out Farms. Mm. And they actually grow like some small batches of native plants. Uh -huh. But he was wondering about resources for knowing when to plant what plants. Because, mm. you know, with garden plants, there's all these resources online you can find like, you know, in March you plant carrots or whatever, making that up. But, right. you know, so with native plants, how do you know? I mean, in general, the rule is you can seed in the fall mm -hmm. and then you can plant live plants from the fall through the spring. I realize that I'm making a whole episode about growing native plants from seed in a window when you should not be starting seeds unless in this really rainy year, like maybe you could get away with it if you started them right now when this episode comes out. But this was actually a really intentional choice. Because I think that when all of the native wildflowers are blooming, that is the best time to get inspired. So the best thing you can do right now is walk around and look at all the different beautiful native wildflowers that are blooming, learn about those, identify them, figure out which ones you want to put in your yard next year. You can purchase seed anytime between now and when it's ready to plant. And in the meantime, if you get going on it soon, you can even get some little native plants in the ground right now. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the general rule within that, refining, like, you know, when to plant what specific plants. That's going to be a really regionally dependent mm. thing. I think it, this is a farm in Sacramento, right? Yeah. I've heard of them. So there's the Sacramento Native Wildlife Gardening Facebook group, which talks a lot about, you know, within that area when the best yeah. time to plant is. But I would say, yeah, go for seeding. We generally recommend that you seed from September through November. And then that's sort of our first planting window. And then our second planting window would be a little bit later because sometimes there's a gap in the rains between mm -hmm. the sort of early winter and the later winter. So September through November is our first window. And then late January through early February is another mm. really good time to and seed. And you can seed then. Okay, so you can seed in either window. Right. But the, okay. that month of sort of December and early January can be a little sketchy mm -hmm. because plants can germinate, but without rain to sort of sustain them, they can then kind of die off. So okay. we need that either you know, you, you get started early and you get those roots down. And some plants like poppies will actually perennialize. So they will, mm -hmm. if you plant them in that early window, 
they'll develop roots that are deep enough that they can actually survive for multiple seasons, even though they're technically annuals. That's awesome. But then if you plant them late January through early February, they kind of act more like annuals. Okay, cool. And you know, you're talking a lot about like the rainfall and the natural water sources, mm -hmm. but like, what if you're planting, how should you care for that? Should you be going out and watering those seeds or should you just be like, hey, let's let the rains take care of it? You know, you can take different approaches, right? Mm -hmm. If you are seeing multiple acres, you can't go out and necessarily and easily irrigate. Mm -hmm. um, and we have lots of clients who are in that situation where they're just, you know, they're putting they're putting seed out, they're trying to time it with the rain and they're hoping for the best. And uh -huh. they will get, you know, depending on the year, they'll get pretty good coverage, especially mm -hmm. if they hydro seed or they mm. use some mulch or straw to protect that seed and lock in some moisture. So how do you do that? So if you are doing, let's say, I wouldn't do this unless you had, you know, a larger area, mm -hmm. but hydro seeding is when you mix seed with a bonded fiber matrix, basically some wood or paper oh, uh -huh. that's kind of mushed up and the seed is suspended in it. And when you put it onto the soil, often this is done on slopes, mm -hmm. it kind of sticks to the soil. Oh. And then the seed is protected by that matrix. Mm -hmm. And when it rains, it kind of keeps, it locks in that moisture and provides a growing medium for that seed to germinate. Wow, and so that's if you're doing a huge area. If you're doing yeah. a smaller area, would you recommend just covering it with the, like with straw? Yeah, so okay, let's say you want to do, you know, you have a small slope in your backyard mm -hmm. and you're interested. The first thing you're really gonna wanna do is increase the contact between the soil and the seed. Mm. So, you know, you can go out and, and sort of spread seed all you want and mm. you'll get, you know, varying results. But if you clear out whatever vegetation is already there, mm -hmm. so you've got bare soil, and then you want to make sure to make that surface, we call it friable, but basically mm. rough up the surface. Yeah. So there's lots of nooks and crannies for the seeds to land in. And that increases the contact between the seed surface and the soil. So then you would go out and you would spread the seed. Mm -hmm. And then you'd want to cover it, either you'd rake it in a little bit, or you can cover it with some mulch or some straw to protect it. And that's what we would recommend. And that probably keeps the moisture in, it keeps it just all cozy in its little growing cocoon down And there. it also <laughs> protects the seed from blowing away if it's oh. windy. First, sometimes on a slope, it'll just kind of slide down the slope otherwise. Mm. And also from critters, you know, we got mm. lots of birds and other small mammals that would be interested in that seed. It helps it if you put a little mulch on top to protect it. Okay, and then it can get established mm -hmm. and then kind of continue growing on its own. Okay, so I tried this. I have this weird little spot in my front yard that's kind of between my driveway and my neighbor's driveway. And so I took a shovel. It was just hard packed dirt. There was nothing growing there. So I took a shovel and I just sort of broke it up a little bit. And once it was all broken up, I took some seed that I got from my friend Jesse, who got it from our friend Cliff, who got it from Hetro originally. And I took the seed and I sort of sprinkled it all along the surface of the ground. And then I sort of just patted it all down and kind of moved the dirt on top of it a little bit. And then I watered it and I watered it occasionally to keep it moist. And then I stopped watering it when it started raining. And that was months ago in the fall. And now I have all of these poppies and physalia and lupins that are coming up. And the physalia is really close to being ready to bloom. So I'm really excited. I'll post some pictures of that when it does bloom. I will say that as soon as I disturbed that soil, though, and started watering it, a million weeds came out. So be prepared for that as a possibility. Yeah, and back to your question itself. about, you know, watering. When you are first putting the seed out there, 
you know, obviously th these are native plants that can survive with very little rain for germination, but it can be very helpful to provide some extra mm. moisture, especially mm -hmm. in this mega drought that we have. Right. What you're thinking about though is the seed is really only hanging out in the top, you know, few centimeters mm -hmm. of the soil in the beginning. So it's less about providing lots and lots of water mm -hmm. and more about providing consistent moisture levels mm -hmm. over a couple week period of time. So if you go out and water a little bit every day for a couple weeks, you'll have better success with germination. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. I know I've mentioned carrots like 50 times today. Yeah. I don't know why. But I think I actually took out all the other times I mentioned carrots because it was excessive. But like that reminds me of planting carrots yes. because you need to keep them moist right at the surface and they're such teeny tiny seeds. They don't need right. all that you deep don't moisture. Need, it's not like a tomato plant where you do one big deep watering once a week. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to get seeds to sprout, it's very different because you just want to keep that top layer moist over you know a certain number of weeks until you can see right. those first true leaves kind of coming up. Okay. And then you can kind of tell, all right, this plant is establishing and you can reduce your watering significantly. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's really great too because I feel like for me, if other people are like me, I have energy for something at the beginning and mm -hmm. then I just like lose the attention yeah. span and the, the endurance, right, sure. to actually follow up on sure. it. So it's kind of nice if that's the, the natural pattern, right? Like I can help you out at the beginning and then you're gonna have to figure it out. Right. And caveat also, I mean, you can just spread seed and, and hope for the best and see what comes up. I'm mm -hmm. not, don't get discouraged. There are fantastic people like SF and Bloom mm -hmm. who go and they just spread seed around and they see what pops up and that's a great way to do it too. So right. don't be discouraged from trying that also. Right. And talking to Shalico, he's like, I have the worst germination rate of any like yeah. gardener, but he still has more plants than almost any gardener, right? right? Because he's just spreading so much seed. And right. so it's really, what kind of approach do you have energy for? Exactly. That's fantastic. Like choose your own adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Both are worthy pursuits. Yes. Now, another listener question, Eric DeCock says that he's had mixed results in propagating natives from seed. So he wants to know, is it best to direct seed into the soil or is it better to start them in pots and then transplant later? Like what are maybe some general rules about that? Sure. I wish I had general rules. <laughs> I feel like the theme of this interview is it depends, yes. right? I think, you know, lots of native seeds are great with direct sowing, mm -hmm. you know, just put them right in the ground. Don't do anything fancy with them. However, there are some species, I know you're really interested in milkweed, yeah. that do benefit from some pre-processing, if you will. So one of the other great groups on Facebook that I love is the native California Native Plant Propagation page. Okay. You can go to that and type in pretty much any species and you'll find some conversation about how to propagate it. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that there are lots of native plants that do well from cuttings. Oh, so, yeah. you know, especially if you're thinking about trees or shrubs, mm -hmm. don't waste your time on seeds. Go out and find some cuttings. Those will be the mm -hmm. most locally adapted. The nice thing about taking a cutting is that if it's a healthy plant and there aren't a ton of people taking cuttings from it, you're not very likely to do any damage to the plant. And you're not taking away seeds that birds could eat or that could be spread by the plant to reproduce. So cuttings are a little bit less morally ambiguous, but you still want to make sure that you know whose plant it is, especially if you're on private property, you want to get permission, and you don't want to do this anywhere that is a nature preserve or any sort of protected area. So back to the question from seed, a lot of native plants have special adaptations that basically allow them to save their energy for the best growing conditions. One of them is some seeds need to experience a 
period of cold temperature before they'll mm. germinate well. So they need to basically think, okay, they've made it through the winter, right. it's the spring, now they can germinate. Other seeds need something called scarification, which is a great word, that I think. That is a great word. And that's where the seed coating on the outside needs to be scratched a little bit. It mm -hmm. needs to be kind of roughed up before it's gonna feel like, all right, I've probably traveled far enough that it um, makes sense to germinate. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can use some, some sandpaper to just kind of crack the seed coating to get mm -hmm. it to germinate a little better. Lupin comes to mind as a species that we often sort of scarify using some sandpaper. And then there's even species that germinate better when they think that they've been through the intestines of a bird. So, you know, let's think about it. If you're trying to disperse as far as possible and you're a seed, you know, when you know that you've been eaten by a bird, flown around and then pooped out, you're more likely to be in a spot that is far away from where you started and that's a good time to germinate. So some seeds actually do better with a little exposure to some acid, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting too. That is so you use for that? Oh gosh, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't uh -huh. think of it off the top of my head. Yeah. I've never done that. According to lots of people on the internet, sulfuric acid is often used for this, but a safer thing that you can use is just plain old white vinegar. It's less effective, but its major selling point is that it is not sulfuric acid. The big takeaway here is that I did not tell you to use sulfuric acid. I've heard of like liquid smoke and yeah, like things like that Yeah, that's another too. one too. So um, some seeds do better when they, you know, they're post-fire species. They're, mm -hmm. They come in as a secondary succession after a fire. Mm -hmm. And so when they experience that smoke, it'll help them. It's really incredible. All right, and then it turns out, I was gonna say my friend Shalico from SF and Bloom, we have him in common though. You guys have been working together a little bit. He talked to me about overseeding and that's particularly like with lawns. So can you talk a little bit about overseeding too? Sure, so this is something, you know, I would love to learn a little bit more about from Shalico, mm -hmm. but I think the idea is that not everybody has the time or energy to kill their lawn and replace it with the native meadow. I mean, mm -hmm. we would all love that, but it, it takes a lot of work, mm -hmm. I mean, just, to get rid of your lawn before you even start to think about what to replace it with is a whole cycle of having to get the unwanted species to come up, get rid of them, then water it again, get the rest of them to come up. And you know, if you're using herbicides, it's a little easier. If you're not using herbicides, it's nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. um, but what a lot of us have in our backyards or front yards is a kind of languishing lawn mm -hmm. that is you know, patchy and has big bare patches and then some patches where it still looks pretty okay and you get this kind of mosaic, right? And so one of the things you can do if you don't have the time or energy to completely replace your lawn is just focus on those bare patches and just do some seeding in there. I mean, granted, you're never going to have a perfect meadow if it's a mix of turf grass and native plants, but it's, it's definitely a start and it probably looks a lot better than a, just a bunch of bare patches in your lawn. For sure. And I feel like for me, like I have a small front lawn and a small back lawn yeah. still, and it's, I just have small yards, but there's still a little bit of grass. And like you said, it's patchy and it's not doing great, but the amount of work, it's either going to cost a lot of time or a lot of money to yeah. be able to do it, or maybe both even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and thinking about tackling that problem is just so, it sounds insurmountable to mm -hmm. me right now. So I love it also is the idea of like, this is an interim step Yes. of like, I'm going to get to tearing out my lawn when I have the chance. Yeah. But right now, I can go and throw some seeds on it. Like, yeah. that's something I can do right now. Totally. And, you know, cut your teeth on it a little yes. bit and learn some learn some lessons. I mean, like I said, every single 
little neighborhood within an area is going to have a slightly different climate mm -hmm. and your soil types are going to vary. So just see what grows really well. Right. I would still say you within those patches on your lawn, I'd still want to rake out whatever dead mm -hmm. grass is there, expose as much soil as you can. Mm -hmm. Still the same principles of timing apply. It's just more of like a patchy approach. Right. You can even pick just one patch to do this fall and then next year do two patches and sure. you know basically scale it however you want. But one thing that I think is sad to me is this idea that you have to have all this money to do these projects because it should be something that is accessible to everybody. Right. Um, and I think as people are starting to, as neighbors are starting to accept this idea that we're not all gonna have these perfect lawns, mm -hmm. You can do things that are a little bit more creative, like have patches of wildflowers in your lawn. It's not like they're looking that great anyway. So. My lawn looks terrible. Yeah. I mean, our HOA hates us because we're always like not mowing our lawn and not mm -hmm. doing all the things. We're like, I'm not going to put fertilizer out there that's going to run off into the <laughs> storm. You know, like I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. And so they can be mad, but like maybe they'll be happier if there's like some poppies growing in it. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where I'm just always going to have beef with my HOA. I think that's what's going <laughs> to We're never going to see eye to eye. Uh, oh my God, you know that? You know that song, the REM song, End of the World as yeah, we know it? Yeah. The other day I rewrote all the lyrics <gasps> to be End of the Lawn as we know oh, it. Oh, nice. So, you know, our new single is going to drop pretty soon. I I'm love pretty that. sure Shalika is going to do the music video. It's going to be great. Oh, please just let me <laughs> in on that collab when that happens. I will help you promote that as far as I can. Okay, so you know I went and followed up with Julia about this to see if she ever made this song. And you guys, she did. She recorded it on GarageBand and she let me listen to it. And at first she made me swear to not play it for anybody. But then she loosened that up just a little bit and said I could play a few seconds for you. So you're going to have to wait until after the credits. It's going to be like a hidden bonus track of this episode, except not hidden because I'm telling you about it. But not a whole track because it's like going to be a few seconds, but it is, it is amazing. And I, I want her to do the whole thing. I'm so ready. The world is ready. The world needs this. So I am an amateur vegetable gardener too. You mm -hmm. wouldn't know it by looking at my yard right now. It's mm -hmm. disastrous over back <laughs> there. But in years previous, I have actually had like a thriving garden. And one of the things that I've done is I have this crazy setup in my garage, right? So I have like a cart mm -hmm. and it's big and it has grow lights on it. Mm -hmm. And then I use like seed trays mm -hmm. that I water from the bottom because I'm too lazy to water them every day. So I like have cool. this like, yeah, it's so that you just pour a bunch of water into the bottom of this thing. It's like, a, it's a cool little setup and it um, keeps the soil uniformly moist. All the little plants sprout and they're so happy. Mm -hmm. And then I, it's got wheels on the cart so I can wheel it outside and harden off the plants very and neat. It's 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 cool and it's been really good for vegetable gardening. And I'm wondering like is there a situation in which you would recommend that for native plants or is it better to start them outside and like get them used to it right away? I would say for wildflowers for the most part I would generally recommend if they're especially annual wildflowers mm -hmm. generally recommend seeding right outside. But for perennial grasses and Ooh. some perennial wildflowers, that would be fantastic. Okay. One of the cool things you can do is, and this is sort of an in-between buying mature plants and buying seed, is mm -hmm. plugs, right? Mm -hmm. So you could grow, you know, a hundred grass plugs of some bunch grasses mm -hmm. and then wheel them out. And then when you're ready, you know, stick those in the bare patches in your lawn. Plug them um, in. And then, yeah, plug them in. Exactly. And that's, I mean, restoration is done that way. That's um, cool. Not everybody 
does it that way and it depends on the size of the project, but that's one way to guarantee, not guarantee, but really increase your chances of success. Right. So people will do whole lawns of plugs and those do really well from starting out in trays. Nice. Mm -hmm. And would you recommend, what if you're wanting to grow something like bigger, like a hedge or like, like a big, a shrub or like Mm toyon or something like that, would you start it? Yeah. In the garage like that? Yeah, a perennial plant could be started from seed in a tray easily. Okay. Yeah, it's cool. just those annuals that, and this is again my opinion, but mm-hmm. I just think if you're going to plant annuals, you might as well just plant them where they are going to grow just because mm-hmm. often they have these deep tap roots and it's going to be kind of disturbing for them to be, you know, once they're big enough being taken out of the tray and then replanted. Mm-hmm. For example, poppies. I've never would plant a poppy in a tray and then try and replant mm. it somewhere or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, um, I've had a lot of luck with just spreading poppy seeds. Yeah, too. well, I mean, and those it, talk about, you know, everything's relative. Poppies are an invasive species in other mm. countries. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's one, one country's native is another country's invasive. Absolutely. But yeah. they've got, you know, they're very, they could do well in pretty much any soil type you put them in. So, yeah, but some things like Phasalia, I'm trying to think of like some of the nice like perennial wildflowers that do well even yarrow can do pretty well from plugs that's mm. a good one so you could start that in your garage and nice. then nice yeah but things like clarkia that are annuals you might just want to seed right where it's going to be okay growing so mostly perennials yeah perennial wildflowers mm-hmm. shrubs and perennial grasses all right yeah perfect yeah i'm excited that's to fantastic. see your, your... I know. I'm like, <laughs> am i going to give time to that this fall i don't know well, at some point exactly it's gonna happen mm-hmm. Okay, so some maybe like troubleshooting advice would be fantastic. And I don't have specific scenarios for you. I was just kind of wondering if there are things that come up Mm -hmm. for people who are starting this out on their own for the first time. Maybe some some of the top most common problems and Mm -hmm. what the solutions are for those. I think one common problem is actually overwatering. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, so you have to think about these plants. Once they're established, right, they really are used to the cycle of wet and dry that we mm-hmm. have in this Mediterranean climate. So sages, for example, yeah. people kill their white sages, their salvia apiana, oh. by overwatering them <laughs> all the time in sense. the summertime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once you've got your plants established, you really want to cut back on watering when it's more traditionally dry time. However, it's also, of course, there's exceptions to the rule. Like when we have 115 degree days for multiple days in a row, you know, you have to make your own decision about it. Some people would say you actually do need to water. So I think, yeah, that's that's one of those things you got to want to pay attention to is once the plants are established, how do you want to care for them? Other troubleshooting things fertilizer some people Mm. put a bunch of fertilizer on their newly planted wildflower beds you really don't want to do that Mm. because native plants do really well in low nitrogen environments Mm -hmm. and sometimes putting too much fertilizer will just encourage the weeds to come in and then weeding is a big issue Mm. right so you plant all of these beautiful native seeds and then oh man that nut sedge my for me it's the nut sedge Mm. it comes up in everything and then you either have to hand pull or you have to think about, okay, maybe if I have all grasses, maybe I might use a little bit of broadleaf specific herbicide. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just that long, think about your plan for the long-term maintenance of your wildflower or native plant garden. Okay, yeah. yeah. So those are the big issues. Mm-hmm. And actually you talking about watering leads right into my next question, which was about irrigation. So like 
Do you have any recommendations for how people irrigate their native plants once they are a little bit more established? Yeah, some people have drip systems, which is really great. Mm -hmm. And again, it's about figuring out your soil type and how much water it needs. And you can do a lot of research online about Mm -hmm. that, but you're going to want to be irrigating more in the first two years while the plants are getting established Mm -hmm. and then really cutting back as they get older. Are you gradually stepping that down? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then you can also hand water. Mm -hmm. It depends on how much time you have. I actually hand water my front strip. I would never do this in my backyard because I just don't think about it. But because Mm -hmm. it's like I walk by it every day, Mm -hmm. I can kind of check on it. And the hand watering kind of keeps you in tune with what things Mm -hmm. need. So, yeah, you can either do hand watering or drip irrigation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that hand watering for some people can be very like meditative. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it can be really nice, but I think it's, it's like that occasionally for me and then I'll just like not do it the rest of the time. So it's probably not a good approach for me. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it totally <laughs> depends. And I think for me, it's the time for me to go and look and see all the cool insects that are in my garden is when yeah. I'm hand watering. Otherwise, I don't know if I would just like go out just to look otherwise because mm-hmm. I'm very busy, you know? And so I think figuring out a, a small area to hand water can be kind of fun. But that's nice. Yeah. yeah, that's a good balance. Do you find that you get some good insect variety? Certainly, yeah. We actually had a lot of fun um, two summers ago, a friend of mine who's an entomologist, and I put out pan traps and pitfall traps in our cool. native gardens and a few other people's native gardens mm-hmm. around Sacramento just to see what species of native bees we had mm-hmm. and all kinds of beetles as well. and. We had all kinds. It was really, really that's interesting. really cool. Yeah. So sometimes you can't even see the biodiversity that's right in front of you mm-hmm. unless you really kind of know how to stop and look for it. Absolutely, yes. Oh, this is another classic mistake people make is a lot of times you think you've killed your plant, but you haven't. Oh. A lot of these plants go mm-hmm. dormant in the summer. So mm-hmm. milkweed is a great example. Mm-hmm. It's going to die back all the way down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And so don't panic if mm-hmm. you think you've killed your native plants. Um, do a little research and see, does this does this plant actually go dormant? Because it might just sprout right back up. Okay, because it's got the root stock like mm-hmm. underground. Yep. All right, let's give people a win. What are some of the easiest native plants to grow? All right, well, poppies, number one. You can't, I mean, it's hard not to grow a poppy. Yeah. If, you, if, if it doesn't work, I'm not trying to shame you. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> they are super easy to grow. Clarkias are also really easy to mm-hmm. grow from seed. Lupins are great. Um, They're nice. They're super fun to watch germinate because they start with these kind of round cotyledons, their first two leaves, and then their first true leaves are the um, lobed ones. So they're just fun to watch. Uh, And then they're really easy to gather the seeds and then replant. So lupins do really, really well. And then it, it sort of depends on how much of a purist you are about locally native plants because I've actually found, especially in Sacramento, some of the more desert California species Mm. have been really, really easy to grow, like apricot mallow. Mm. That Mm. has been one of the ones I've had the most success with. Okay. Um, Apricot mallow is just, it thrives in the heat and low moisture environment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, you know, a lot of those annuals are a great place to start. Apricot mallow is a perennial, but I just found that that was a really cool one. But yeah, lupins, poppies, clarkias, gilias are really easy to grow. And then, you know, and this one I wouldn't do from seed necessarily. I'd probably just go out and buy a plug or a one gallon, but California fuchsia. Oh, I think yeah. every garden in uh-huh. California should have a, a fuchsia in it just because they're so beautiful. They're some of the later bloomers. So you mm. get this pop of brilliant color just when everything else is kind of starting to die out. And mm-hmm. then you get 
hummingbirds. I was going to say, incredible. my neighbors have like a huge patch of California fuchsia and I always see hummingbirds fluttering around there. Yeah. It's very cool. And those, you can treat those just like rosemary. What I love about fuchsia, mm. California fuchsia, is if you can grow rosemary, you can grow oh. California fuchsia. So I can grow rosemary. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. One tip I've heard about growing California fuchsia, and this is from Matthew at Find Out Farm, so shout out to Matthew. He says that if you plant it just in a random place in your yard, it might take over a little bit. So he recommends planting it like on the hell strip, that strip in the front yard where it's like the between the sidewalk and the street or anywhere that's sort of encased around with concrete. Because what that does is it keeps it from spreading to places where you don't want it and taking over everything else. But it's a fantastic plant. So just find a place where it'll be a little bit contained and then just kind of ignore it, which is what I do to my rosemary. And I'm guessing it will be happy. Okay. Maybe any difficult ones we should know about just either for people who want a challenge or so that people don't feel bad if they don't have success with it. I would say milkweed is hard, mm -hmm. especially if you're trying to start it from seed. Mm -hmm. I've seen people have trouble with white sage. Okay. It's definitely one of those super popular plants, mm -hmm. but just because it's so picky about water and it's like either I see like a really nicely well-established one or I see lots of like struggling sad recently planted ones mm -hmm. um sometimes white sage can be pretty picky other types of sage can be really easy like okay. I love hummingbird sage mm -hmm. salvia spathaceae I think it's called so beautiful mm -hmm. pretty hardy but yeah so don't feel bad I mean any native plant can be picky and difficult at times sure. so and like you know white sage usually grows on like rocky hillsides right so mm -hmm. it's like I have like clay you know right it's probably not the same as it's native exactly so for me to say which ones are harder based on my experience mm -hmm. in the clay soils of Sacramento so if someone in right. southern California might be listening being like man she must really suck at gardening because yeah, it's problem? so easy <laughs> that one so yeah off. again it depends sorry yeah. no, I mean, but that's good to know yeah and it, and it helps to know what it depends on right exactly that really narrows it down okay so let's say that people get some native seed and they're not ready to plant it this season mm -hmm. or they end up with extra for whatever reason what's a good way to store it like what should people be doing yeah i would keep it in like a paper bag mm -hmm. something with that's a little breathable keep it in a cool dark place okay that's the best way so like is just your air conditioned climate controlled house good enough or does it need to be like in the fridge i don't think you need to keep it in the fridge okay no i think our warehouse is not refrigerated mm -hmm. it's just cool low moisture mm -hmm. and dark uh well you know you wouldn't want to put it like on the windowsill or something sure like that. Mm -hmm. okay yeah and then that's easy seed can keep pretty long i mean it's not necessarily like a tomato seed where every year it has this dramatic drop in germination rate. Mm -hmm. Some of these seeds, depending on the species, can be many years old before they even decide to germinate. So, nice. okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, too, the other thing is if you're not having success broadcasting your seeds, you're still contributing to that soil seed bank, right? So, Certainly. So maybe it's just not its moment. Maybe it's going to come back some other time. Yeah, I think if you're somebody who is open to uncertainty and who likes trial and error, I think that you'll enjoy native gardening. I think one of the beautiful things about it is sort of giving up your sense of control mm. a little bit. People who are interested in creating nature in their backyards, you kind of have to adjust your expectations. Mm. And I think it can be a really, really useful endeavor in this time when there's so many things that 
feel out of our control to mm -hmm. have something that is sort of purposely out of our control a little yeah. bit and that we can look at and, and learn from and just observe and share our observations with other people. So yeah, I think it's psychologically it can be a really nice endeavor. That's great. Mm -hmm. And I like that because it, it allows you to kind of give yourself grace too, because yes. I mean, these plants that we grow for food or for other agricultural purposes, right? Like these have been adapted over generations and generations and generations and generations, yes. right? Like for so long to be able to be grown as crops mm -hmm. by humans. And so they should be easier, right? Like yes. when you're dealing with native plants, you're dealing with wild species. Yeah, they're wild animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same way that you wouldn't expect, you know, a, a wild ringtail to behave the same as a house cat, you know, right. and that unpredictability. I want it to, of, but it won't. I know. <laughs> Oh, it would be fun to have a pet ring. I want one. But yeah, I mean, that unpredictability is what's so fascinating and so humbling. And, right. you know, even here at Hedro, where we're using traditional agricultural techniques to grow large amounts of native plants, and we have 30 years of experience, and we have these super knowledgeable people, every year is a new adventure for us. Yeah. And there's just so many things out of our control. Mm -hmm. and And you have to be flexible yeah yeah i just imagine that jeff has like this insane spreadsheet inside of his brain that's like constantly being updated <laughs> yes i mean and you know i don't i don't want to embarrass jeff but i just at this point i think that he is personally responsible for <laughs> so many restoration projects oh, being great. successful across the state i mean his knowledge which you know and, and we do need to plug don anderson who mm. started hedro mm -hmm. farms and founded this this place and trained Jeff and so many mm. other restoration practitioners in this area. I mean, it, it has been a completely grassroots effort to mm. learn how to do this. You know, 30 years ago, there wasn't anything like this. There wasn't, you know, you couldn't get native seed to do restoration and restoration wasn't so commonly understood to be a worthwhile endeavor. That's so amazing. we're really, you know, we're really excited to continue our legacy here at Hedro. We're really excited to continue being a venue and a hub for native plant education and outreach. And we're just so excited to, to host more tours and outreach events in the future yeah. and, you know, keep that going. Speaking of events, open up your calendar app because Hedgerow has two of them coming up. The first one will be on Friday, March 31st, and the second will be on Thursday, April 13th. And I know it sounds like it would be far away to most of us city dwellers because this is a farm we're talking about, but Hedro is only about 35 minutes west of Sacramento and only an hour and a quarter northeast of San Francisco. So it's very easy to get there from many parts of the Sacramento Valley and the Bay Area. And you're definitely going to want to check out the farm at this time of year because the wildflowers will be going off. And there are just acres and acres of wildflowers. It's like an annual super bloom. I've personally only gotten to see the farm in the fall so far. I've been there two different falls. So I'm really excited to come and check it out so soon. Make sure to follow Hedro on Instagram at Hedro underscore farms or follow their Facebook page to find out more. Okay, last question for you. What about the work that you do either here at Hedgerow or just growing native plants? What still blows your mind or takes your breath away about it? I think that, I mean, the really like classic response is just like how resilient and adaptable native plants are mm -hmm. and just seeing mm -hmm. the way that they can thrive in such stressful environments. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm, as much as I love plants, I love people more. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love 
it it really blows my mind how many people are passionate about this and mm -hmm. how empowering it is to to contribute to this effort to restore and conserve wildlife in California. Mm -hmm. It brings people together so much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people who I wouldn't have anything else in common with, finding that common ground. And I think especially when things are really tough, just having this feeling like you are tangibly doing something to help can just be really, really special. And it just blows my mind how therapeutic it can be. So yeah, I think just, I, I love my job every day. And I think a lot of people who work in this field love their job most days, which is pretty special. That is not something you hear every day. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time. You oh, took your whole morning. I thank appreciate you it. so very much. It's been such an honor to, to get to be on this fantastic podcast. And I don't know, I just, your work has been just so inspiring. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that coming from someone who's doing so much to make our whole state a better place with California native seeds. So thank you, Julia. The feeling is completely mutual. And also, Julia is completely right about the community that exists around native plants. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to experience this yet, but I'm consistently just stunned by what good people are attracted to learning about native plants and taking action for their local ecosystems by growing their own native plants. So thank you also for listening and being here and caring about all of the living beings and biodiversity around you. The other thing I want to thank Julia for is that she is literally the guest that I have sent the most emails to and the most text messages after an interview just asking follow-up questions. I had so many. And she was so patient with me and answered all of my questions. And it was very appreciated. Oh, and one of the things I was curious about was how that dry well was doing after all the rain of this season. And you will be glad to know that it's back in action. And those groundwater recharge ponds and bioswales are getting a lot more action this year than the previous few. When I emailed Julia to ask her about the well, she replied, all is well, which is 10 out of 10. Great answer. And if you think this podcast also gets full marks, make sure to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Reviews make me smile a whole lot when I read them. So thank you to everyone who's already left one. And there are so many reminders from this episode. I'm just going to blast you with all of them right now. So don't forget to share this episode with a native plant-loving friend, particularly if that friend lives in Amador City. Next, the Hedgerow events are March 31st and April 13th, and you should go to them. They even have a little lawn that is made from all California native grasses. It's amazing. The City Nature Challenge is coming up at the end of April, so don't forget to download iNaturalist. And don't forget to stay to the very, very end of this episode for the not-secret, not-full-track. Okay, I think that's all the reminders. Something interesting for my week is that I got to go on a critter walk at the Vernal Pools at Sac Splash, which you may remember from one of the first ever episodes of this podcast. And the person leading my group was David Rosen, the guest from that episode. I was so excited about it because David is a fantastic guide. My kids, unfortunately, got cold and grumpy because it was a wet and windy day and I haven't taken them out enough in days like that. So we went back to the splash building a little early and looked at the invertebrates swimming around in a bunch of trays they had out for display. I had such a good time and I'm so excited to go back on a flower walk next month during the flower phase. Okay, that's it for this one. Just one episode left in season two. 
So I can't wait to see you on the last episode of season two of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. It's the